This morning is September 4th, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is Joseph's Storehouse. It's Joseph's Storehouse, if you're taking notes. Go ahead and turn with me to James. Right now, you can imagine, as we talked about in worship and just before this message, our hearts and minds are on people in Louisiana and now in Texas and all over the place, Mississippi, that uh, Alabama, that have experienced great loss according to Katrina or as the result of Katrina. We've had a lot of focus on the proverb that says that the storm comes and the wicked are washed away, but the righteous stand forever. And, you know, at first glance, people look and say, well, well, if your house was washed away, then you must have been wicked. And there are a lot of Christians that have the attitude, if I'm blessed, it's because I'm godly. If I see bad things or negative things, it's because somebody's ungodly. You know, you've never lived to experience a bad feeling until you've been a new Christian in love with the Lord, susceptible to what somebody preaches because you don't know enough of the Word to know yet. Somebody look at you and tell you you're under a curse because you don't make as much money as they do in a year. I had that experience. The person was ignorant, didn't know, praise God. Hopefully they've learned and grown since then. But I remember thinking, because I don't have what they have, am, am I doing something wrong? Friends, that's not what that proverb means at all. It means that our lives don't consist in the abundance of our possessions. So if a storm sweeps it all away, the righteous still stand. But the wicked who put all of their hope in their possessions will hang themselves when they lose everything. Stock market crashes, great disasters, it happens. It has happened in Louisiana. It happened in Alabama. It happened in Mississippi. And I've already gotten stories. First-hand accounts. I don't want to go into all of that graphic stuff, but people committed suicide when they saw the damage. Isn't that crazy? Today is the day. Today is the day and now is the time to pour out your lives. It's a shame that it takes 24-hour news coverage to get Christians to think like this, to get Christians to break up because this is what we were born for. This is why you were redeemed. This is why a deposit's been placed in you. I'm going to read to you something out of James and we're going to move right on into the Word and hopefully I can deliver it the way that the Lord delivered it to me. In James, the second chapter, starting in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. We should praise God when there is the opportunity for you to put your faith in action because others have a chance to visibly see that faith. Now, our church this morning has got more groceries, more food, more clothes piled in the church than we have people. And only one box. Now, I'm not saying this to shame you guys because you didn't know. You didn't know we were doing it. We handed this out to others. But only one box in here came from Christians. This is what lost people did. These hundreds of pounds of things here. This is what people did that are not regular church attenders, some of whom I know personally were Buddhist, some of whom, like the lady I told you about earlier, that thought she wasn't good enough to come to church. The truth is, most churches are not good enough for that woman because her heart's where God is. She smoked and she drank. So what? She had the heart of God. She gave I'm telling you, there was not a single thing, and Mandy witnessed it, there was not a single thing in her pantry that was 
unopened that she did not give to us. Tell me that's not the heart of God. Now, this came from quote-unquote lost people. What ought the response be by the church of the living God? You know the familiar story. I've told you a lot, but some people haven't heard it, so I'll do it very quickly. An acquaintance of mine that has the ministry Bridges for Peace got to Israel in 1976, and he's there, and a woman says, why did you come to Israel? And he began to tell her all of the things that he believed. And she said, ah, this is great, but what do you do? The world is waiting not to hear what you believe. They're waiting to see what you do. And God's just provided us the opportunity. But this is just one opportunity. They happen every day. The truth is, most of us are looking at ourselves so much that you pass by them every day and don't see them. You ever have the thought, well, what if I give this person money and they do something bad with it? So what? If you gave it unto God, there's the reward. Their responsibility what they do with it. I gave somebody money when I first got married that used it for drugs. That mean that I didn't hear from God or didn't do the right thing? No. It meant that they didn't do the right thing. Have you ever been in a place where you weren't sure you would eat? It doesn't happen to very many of us. But how many of you could go a month without a paycheck? Two months? Three months? Most of us are not wealthy people. We don't have a lot stored up in those ways. What happened there could happen here tomorrow. I have seen for myself with my own eyes people with wheelbarrows of money on the television set that could not buy a loaf of bread. Friends, it's time to store up something, and I don't mean natural possessions. Turn with me to Genesis 41. We're going to talk about Joseph's storehouse today. Now, if you have one of those ribbons in your Bible, you'll want to put it at Genesis 41. Because we're going to read most of Genesis 41 today, but I'm going to flip all over the place. Is that all right with you? Okay. Some of this will be very familiar and some of it won't. But I'm hoping that this is one of those messages that will stir us to action. You know what? There are times, even the other night, when Matthew and Cassidy and Jennifer and I were praying, asking for direction about the leadership of the church, what we should do, what example should we set, what, how, what would make God pleased with us. There are times where you will stand in strong disagreement with people. Now, we were not in strong disagreement, but we weren't quite lined up right. But you know what? If you just want to do something godly, if you just are looking for the opportunity, at least you're spurring one another on. You know, you may not see things exactly the way I did. You may say, well, Eric, that's just because of your experiences in your life. Well, I just hope to spur you on to something godly. I'm not asking you to agree with me all of the time. There are times petty little differences in our church cause people to lose fellowship and hurt feelings. You know what? We don't have, all have to see things the same way. We just need to live lives that spur one another on to godliness. And if that's your motive, and I've been harsh to you, I'm sorry. But if that's not your motive, you need to get right. You need to test you up. Get on the right road. All right, y'all in Genesis 41? heard to me people may not know what Teshuba means that listen to this as repent. In Genesis 41, starting in verse 15, this is a pretty familiar story. You remember, Pharaoh's had a couple dreams. He's asked all of his magicians, wise men, interpreters to come interpret it, and they can't do it. 
15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I wonder how he heard that said. The previous 15 verses tell of people that experienced this from Joseph. So the word spread to Pharaoh. Guys, the things that we do, we don't do for men to see. We do for our Father to see. But if men never see them, if you are not the church in some visible way outside doing things for Jesus, then how would they know? Paul goes so far as saying, how can they hear unless somebody preaches? How can they believe unless they have a message to hear? Sometimes, because we believe in this church that you are Spirit-led when you witness, that somebody can only be saved if the Spirit of the Father draws them, I think sometimes we're waiting for the bullhorn to yell at us to witness, to show love to people, to do this. And, and it doesn't need to be that way. You need to be in the forward mode, ready to do it, looking for the opportunity to do it, and let Jesus tell you, oh, oh, not that one. Let's assume we should do good and let Jesus tell us if He doesn't want us to in a certain situation because He's smarter than us. Let's not assume that we should sit back and be self-absorbed and do nothing and wait for Him to tell us to do something. Keith Green may have got a little, a little out of balance, but he said, the Word already says, go. Go into all nations. He said, you should have God have to tell you to stop, not to tell you to go. Now, I think, truthfully, not everybody's called to the nations as, as missionaries. But there is something to be said for that attitude. Verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph... Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 16. I cannot do it. Now, he's just, Pharaoh's just said, you know, I've heard you can interpret dreams. What's Joseph's first response? I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Where on earth is the balance between letting your light shine before men and letting your actions of righteousness be done for the Father? Where is that balance? I think we can find it in Joseph's life as we study Joseph's storehouse. I want to read to you, and you can turn there if you want, but I want to read to you something. This is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 7. It says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over or against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Key words here being, what do you have that you did not receive? And I ask you this morning, what do you have in your lives, in your families, in your cupboards, in your checkbook, that you didn't receive? How many of you minted your own money? Dug gold out of the earth? How many of you did that? And even if you did, those very elements God put here for you. How many of you spoke into existence the groceries that are in your cupboard today? So what is the balance? How do you find the balance? The balance is, your attitude in everything that you do needs to be like Joseph. He said, no, 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 no. I cannot do this, but God can do it through me. God will give you the answer. Michelangelo is a famous artist, right? He had a brilliant observation. It says, the great artist Michelangelo Angelo, fastened a little lantern to his headpiece so that the shadow wouldn't fall on the marble on which he was working. When self becomes obtrusive, it casts a shadow on all we do. 
when we begin to act as if we are the source of light or get the source of light too close to us, it casts the shadow of self on everything that you try to do. If I put myself in front of God, in anything that I do, it stains everything forward with my shadow, the shadow of self. So what our goal is, is to get the light out in front of us everywhere we go. So that people will see, if they see us at all, they see us reflecting God. They don't attribute it to you. One of the beautiful things about all of these groceries and all this food in here is when we do get to bring it somewhere, the only thing I'm happy about the church not having contributed more at this point is we're able to say, no, 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 sweetheart. We just collected these things. None of us bled for this. None of us in here did anything worthy of praise. You know what? The lost people in our neighborhood did. Now, I'm hoping that as you... I left all of this stuff in here intentionally. I thought about getting all the stuff out of Matthew's garage, but I wasn't sure it would fit and still have the opportunity to sit. I'm hoping that this spurs you on. I'm hoping that if a Buddhist brings eight bags, surely together we can get ten. This idea of giving the glory to God, getting the right balance. There was a female physician that was on the foreign mission field. She helped to heal a child. A child that was of somebody important and was greatly loved. And uh, listen to this encounter. It says, In gratitude, he knelt, this is the father of the child, at her feet, and not only thanked her, but worshipped her as if she were a god. She stopped him, saying that she was only mortal like himself, and worship belonged only to God. He replied that no one but God could have saved this child's life. He went on to ask, who would you think? Who would you praise? The missionary replied, for a princely gift sent by the hand of a messenger, who do you think deserves the praise? The servant or his generous master who is the giver? I am one of God's servants whose hand he has been pleased to send you this great gift of healing. Where is the balance? There it is. Somebody's tempted to thank you? Somebody's tempted to think you did something? He said, no, 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 sweetheart. No, no, sir. I am just the messenger. The giver of all good gifts. Somebody quoted this during worship. Comes from our Father above. Now, you know what's amazing? See people that are reportedly not in His service. That don't go to church. Or that worship foreign gods. Being His messengers. He's able to use the ravens. Thus, you would like to see the doves get used every now and then. The rocks will praise Him if you don't. But I sure would like to see you do it. You understand? This is what I'm hoping will motivate us towards action. Because this is why we were born. This is why we were selected apart. God desires an increase in the deposit He put in you. He saved you so that you could do the work of the kingdom. We think He saved us so that we could be intellectually enlightened. We could understand all theology. So that we could sit back and be blessed and have tape recorders and prophecies and all of these wonderful things. Brag about who's who in the charismatic zoo. He saved us to do the work of the kingdom. There are some people with horrible theology in this world that are doing wonderful things. I ask you, what is better? To know the deep things of God or to perform them? I'm thinking right now in my mind of a church that's been criticized for the lack of depth in its doctrine been criticized because, oh, that place is so shallow, they don't understand this, they don't understand that. 
They were one of the first to put 500 beds in their sanctuary. They're one of the first to organize food, donations, and drop-offs so that while other churches were sitting around talking about what to do, they were doing something. You tell me whose doctrine is shallow. The body of Christ needs to rise up and wake up. If you're in the middle of a divorce, if you are hurting, you couldn't care less about the Greek tense of verbs. You need somebody to love you. You need somebody to help you. We need to be Jesus. Doctrine divides. And I'm not telling you I'm going to throw away doctrine. I'm not. I will fight for it. I will stand upon it. But I will not let doctrinal differences keep me from doing the will of God. If you do, you will build a wall between you and God. Because it's, or a ceiling. Because as you build walls between you, you and your neighbor, you cut off the blessings of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that. He said, when you build a wall between you and your neighbor, you build a ceiling between you and God. Let's not be critical of what other people are doing. Let's not be critical of what they believe if we see them doing. How many of those sheep and goats that Jesus addressed, how many did He say, oh, come sit at my right hand because of the great doctrine that you espoused. You understood eschatology and nobody else did. You understood Israel's place among the nations and nobody else did. You understood my Hebraic roots. And nobody else did. All the things that we take pride in, none of those things were said. But people did the will of God. I got saved with one verse and I forget it sometimes. Not that I forget to quote it. I forget its meaning. It says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. He said, only he who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom. Only he who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom. This is not about what we believe. So Joseph's attitude was a good one. In Luke 17.10, you hear these words. And I'm often not stopping here for you to turn. And I'm sorry about that. I need to get through lots of this. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Where is the balance between letting your light shine before men and doing acts of righteousness for only the Father to see? Here's the balance. You do it as unworthy servants. You do it as people who say, man, I've just been redeemed. God's given me so much. I can't help but do this. Don't look at me. Look at Him. You know, Paul and Barnabas had people try to worship them as gods and they tore their clothes and the people turned on them and wanted to stone them. We need to get this balance and get it right. You need to be busy doing the work of God. And any time somebody's tempted to say how great you are, put a, po- uh, put a funny hat on you. You just look right up and say, I'm just a servant of God. Now, here I am. I'm saying something that would divide people. I don't mean that. I, I tell you what, right now, I'd take food if I was hungry for me. Anybody that'd give it to me. I'd go stay in any house they would open its arms to me. And God can use even the ravens. I won't do it, but you know Reinhard Bunker had that story. All this is on two videos. Every story you've ever heard me quote from Reinhard Bunker or Paul Youngie Cho came from two videos. Patricia sent me more than ten years She still has one of them. I need to watch them again. He said he was praying for people to get baptized in the Holy Ghost and it was at Westminster Abbey or somewhere like that. He said he looked up and one of the Episcopalian priests 
or I think it was Episcopalian, Anglican priest, was praying for people to get filled with the Holy Ghost. He said, God, you don't mind the... <laughs> made fun of the clothes and the hat. And uh, he said, God looked at him and said, I don't mind. I don't mind. God will use willing vessels. How dare us sit back, have our doctrine right, and our deeds wrong. Okay, let's read some more of this. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came seven cows fat and sleek. They grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came first. You know, we have this topic on on the Internet right now of funny stories in the Bible. Stories that, at first glance, seem kind of humorous. Now, you tell me that seeing a scrawny, ugly, lean cow eating a fat cow would not be a sight to behold, huh? How would he even do it? Cows don't eat meat. This must have been some dream Pharaoh had. But even after they ate them up, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. Cows had a disease, huh? Couldn't be cured with a pill. There was no no cure for ugly. In my dreams, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. There are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all of the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. Keep your finger there. Basically, Joseph gets this revelation that there is a famine coming in the land. But the famine will come after good things. In Amos, I want to read you something. It's Amos 8.11. Keep your finger where you're at. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You know, there are all kind of things that people can hunger for. You can hunger to have your flesh fed. You can hunger to have your spirit fed. You can hunger for compassion. You can hunger for love. Hunger manifests itself in all kind of ways in people. God said that there would be a famine. In fact, the context of this in Amos is speaking about after, after a crucifixion, there would be a famine, a drought from hearing from the Lord in the land of Israel. Now, that's odd because 
People were hearing from God every day in the land of Israel. Apparently the drought was short and lasted for the leadership of the nation. But then he goes on. This is the, the scripture that James quotes in Acts and said, Ah, but then I will again return and rebuild David's tabernacle. And goes on to talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That occurred in the book of Acts. We've taught on that many times. There is a famine that continues to this day. Not in a specific land. But there are people that because of an improper view of the crucifixion are not hearing God's voice. They are not hearing from God. Their thirsty souls are not being watered. You guys are experiencing years of plenty. You're hearing from God. You're filling up. You're filling up every day. You've had many years to do that. As much as we're talking about food today and you sharing food with people, how dare we not share of the years of our abundance with those that are hurting? Listen to this. While visiting a lighthouse, a man said to the innkeeper, Are you afraid to live here? It seems dangerous being so close to the coast in all these storms. No, replied the man, I'm not afraid. We never think of ourselves here. What do you mean? Never think of yourself. How is that? Christians, I want you to listen to this. Sky in the lighthouse. We know that we are perfectly safe and that we only think of having our lamps burn brightly and keeping our reflectors clear so that those in danger may be saved. This is what Christians ought to do. They are safe in a house that the Bible says is built on a rock and cannot be moved by the wildest storm. And in a spirit of holy unselfishness, they should let their light shine and gleam out into the dark waves of sin, that those in trouble might be guided to a source of security. You know, half the time Christians are so worried about experiencing loss themselves that they don't help others that truly are in a state of loss. Now, you don't have to have a hurricane for that. There's a famine in the land that is spiritual as well as physical. We're seeing something in the physical. But the truth is, New Orleans was devastated long ago spiritually. Where are the Christians that say, hey, I'm in the lighthouse. I'm not going to worry about suffering loss. My job is to reflect light. My job is to shine brightly and fill the void of this famine. I'd never hold out food as I heard some of the churches here advocating to get people into a worship service. That sickens me. It sickened the people that told me about it. I'm sure some people's hearts are right in that and that's just the way they've been taught and some people's hearts are not right in it. But the truth is people have two needs. James said your religion is useless if you don't do anything about people's physical needs. He said it's useless. Now, I'm suggesting that we be equally aware of both the spiritual famine and the natural famine. That we not be like people sitting around wondering what happens to us when the storm comes and wanting to save up and protect ourselves. I'm suggesting that you pour yourself out. Psalm 33, verse 18 says this, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him on those whose hope is in His unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We hope, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. 
May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. He's able to keep us alive in famine, to keep us from death. We trust in you, O Lord. We sang a song today. The song was, those who trust in the Lord, they'll not be moved. The Lord never changes all of those lyrics. But then when it comes time to hurt in your giving, to risk yourself in some way. You know, we were talking about bringing people into our homes and that that is absolutely open. As God would lead, we will do that. But as we were talking about it, you know, there's this uncomfortable feeling that comes from deep within when you talk about a stranger staying in your house, isn't there? This is your personal space. This is the area where the true you dwells. We don't like to do that. And yet we know from the story of Elijah and the years I've been teaching on it, that the widow's son gets raised from the dead when you take him into your personal space. Deed-based evangelism is what causes the kingdom to grow. It is a totally modern facade that it is the oratory powers of a preacher or that it is the abundance of blessing in Christians' lives that cause the lost to get saved. That is total garbage. What causes people to get saved are Deeds of righteousness done in faith. In my life, everybody, everybody that I know had a sincere conversion as a part of our lives or that I experienced that had to do with deeds, not just words. You want proof of that? Go where a thousand tracts have been handed out. And I promise I've handed out as many tracts as anybody in here. You'll see them littered on the ground afterwards. Not to say tracts are not good or that they're not seeds that are planted. Like I said, I've handed out more than probably anybody in here. But we get saved. We get truly moved when we see actions. It's time for the church to do that. Turn with me to verse 35 of Genesis 41. Actually, I guess we ought to read what's in between there, huh? Would we stop in 30? 30. But seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Look how merciful God is. His warning Not once, but twice. Repeating dreams and multiple meanings. Trying to warn people there's a famine coming. That's where God's heart is. We've discussed predestination until we're blue in the face. Where God's heart is, is in warning people that danger is approaching so that they might be saved. We can say Noah was the only one predestined to get on the ark. The Bible says Noah preached to the people. The fact that nobody responded doesn't mean that they weren't destined to respond. It meant that they missed their destiny. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that's the heart of God. Now, you're supposed to be His mouthpiece. You're supposed to be His hands and feet, as am I. What a great responsibility. We glory in the richness of being declared righteous in Christ. We glory in the idea that we're sons of the living God. It's time to put our feet to the pavement. Time for the rubber to meet the road from a faith standpoint. Tell you what, if you happen to be speaking to me in the months to come about all the great revelation you have and there are no deeds in your life, 
I may pretend to listen, but I promise it's falling on deaf ears. I'll be polite, but I promise it's falling on deaf ears. It is time for Christians to act like Christians. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the city for food. Keep your finger on verse 36. We're going to collect during the good years. It's going to be reserved for the bad years. While your finger is on verse 36 or your ribbons there, whatever, turn with me to Matthew 6. I taught on this once before. And most of you heard it. Now we get the opportunity to live it. doesn't matter if you know what it means if you don't do what it says. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Now, this is a Hebrew idiom. Good eye and bad eye. You remember what I taught you that was? A good eye is the eye that is on what God's eyes are on. The Torah, which is the foundation for the Bible. The Old Testament as a whole is the foundation for the New Testament. But the Torah specifically is the foundation for all of the Bible. The first revelation God gave in Deuteronomy 13 says that that written revelation is the standard by which you would measure all the rest of the revelation. Well, that's a light you may never have seen the law in, huh? Go read Deuteronomy 13 when you're done here. But having said that, this Bible, the Torah, the Tanakh, the whole Old Testament declares over and over and over that God cares about widows and orphans, that He wants gleanings left in field, that He wants people to care for the aliens and the foreigners in their land, that He wants the land to rest. Over and over and over, this idea is there to show people God's eyes are on people to be generous to them, to be good to them, to provide for them. So why he's talking about not laying up your treasure in heaven, but or not laying it up in earth, but laying it up in heaven, he goes on to teach about what you should be looking for. To have a good eye means that you have God's perspective on things. You're looking to be generous. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you guys that are supposed to be God's representatives, God's hands and feet on earth, don't have your eyes on what God does, but are staring at yourself, how great will that darkness be? That's what he's teaching. That's why it goes right on to talk about two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Christians for many, many years, most Christians, let's just be honest, are balancing fence between serving those two things. We give as long as it doesn't really affect us. Now, when I say this, it's kind of Matthew and I experienced this in football when people have to run sprints, especially as punishment, there are always a few that have the right kind of heart. And they run as hard as they can every time because that's what the coach asked for. Then there were a few that were like me that knew where I was supposed to come in. 
I knew when I ran with the running backs, Brad was faster than me and Eric Baum was slower than me. So as long as I came in between those two, we were all right. There was kind of an unspoken arrangement with Eric Baum and I. You know, we all knew where we were supposed to go. We reserved our strength. We reserved ourselves. We held something because we didn't know how many sprints we were going to run. And guys like Brad Lively would pass out because the coach would see that we were loafing. He'd make us all run again and again and again and again. And I loafed again and again and again while Brad ran with everything that he had again and again and again. When I preach like this, there's a, there's a danger. There is a danger that some of you who are sprinters financially will wear yourselves out because others are loafers and we're trying to get the whole group to move in unison. So I'm going to get to the balance and I promise that. I'm not preaching this message about money though. Money is a small part of it. When we did all of this, we put in big, bold letters on the flyers we handed out to the neighborhood. No, zero, none, no monetary donations. I did that for a couple of reasons. One is, I figured that people would be less skeptical. Second is, I don't really know how to handle that from a bookkeeping standpoint. Um, so, I mean, I know how to do what churches do. Third is, I figured that was your job. Be honest. I figured that was your job. I figured that was Matthew's job. That was my job. That our families would contribute financially. We'll take that money from the church coffer and go buy things. What I hoped for from the loss was a few cans of soup. And look what they did. What do you think our response are to be? Now, if you see me wearing a $2,000 suit and a Mercedes tomorrow, after you just wrote a check that hurts, you ask God about that and see what happens. You know? See if you don't see judgment in my life. We have an obligation like Joseph had an obligation to do what God requires with grain. Okay? I'm not trying to exact money out of you. Please get the... I mean, I've never preached... This whole time you've known me, we haven't preached on money. But there is a need. Matt and I have a spreadsheet built. How many cans of Clorox? How many of these can we buy with the amount of money that we have in the church? And your first temptation, just like yours is, is wait. It's not very many, but the church has a few obligations. There's a, and they're not salaries, friends. Okay? But there are some bills that the church has that gets paid. And first obligation is, wait, if I do that, I won't be able to pay those bills. Today is not the day that you protect yourself. The guys in the lighthouse are safe. You know why? They're built on the rock. This is the time for the people in the storm. Where were we? Matthew 6. That's right. Get this. Where are you storing your treasures? Who is your master? All of us would say, we're storing our treasures in heaven, right? All of us would say, Jesus is our master and money doesn't even come into the picture. A church member was once, not in here, was once expecting to inherit $300,000. They were prominently mentioned in a will and somebody was dying. Nobody in my family ever had 300000 so this hadn't been a temptation. But the member said to the pastor, if I get 300000 I will give one-third to the church. The pastor kind of smiled, shirked his shoulders, looked at the ground. said, how will you give one-third of this amount when you can't give one-tenth of what you now earn? It's not what we would do if we had the money. It's what we're doing with what we have now. Friends, the gospel's built on that principle. There are those that have abused this. They beat this into the ground to try to extort the sheep. They're shearing the sheep every day and the sheep can't even grow wool. And they're getting fat while the sheep are cold. I'm not trying to do that. 
but you do need to get your lives right. This is the time. It's always, if I get that job, if I get that bonus, if I pay off this debt, if I do this, then I will. Faith is never, when God does for me, then I will do. Faith is always, I will leap off the board and worry about the water later. Now, I promise we'll bring that back into balance. I'm not asking you to bounce checks to God. Funniest thing I ever heard in my life, they pulled the preacher off the air, but a preacher named people in his church that had bounced checks. <laughs> I almost drove off the road laughing. He said, you lied to God. Well, probably the pastor pushed them so hard to give that they gave what they didn't have. That's not what we're asking for. Paul brings it into perfect balance and we will get to that. Luke 6.45 says this. Stay where you're at in Genesis though. Luke 6.45 says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. That was verse 45. Now, like Joseph, like Joseph's storehouse, you're supposed to be spending the time in the church, the time in the kingdom, storing up good, both financially, oh, materially, and spiritually, so that during years of famine, you are ready to give. You're not learning this stuff to entertain yourself. The reason we put the motto above the door, perform out there what you've practiced in here, is so that you will be storing up during these years of plenty so that when you're in a year of famine, you can pour it out. The early church was thankful to Jerusalem. The apostles were there. The apostles had laid down teaching that the Gentile churches benefited from. And you know what? They stored it up so that when a famine came in Jerusalem, they were ready to give back spiritually and naturally to the people in Jerusalem. They were ready for that. I'm thankful for the things I stored up during my years in Baton Rouge. And I want to say publicly, I'm thankful for King's Harvest Fellowship. I have been preaching out of those years of abundance during years of famine when nobody's preaching to me. You can get so full and you can be taught the right way that you can become an inexhaustible fountain that God will give sower or seed to the sower. You never run out. Friends, I'm not talking about money at all now. I've been taught how to tap into the source so I never, never run dry. You know how many times I don't know what I'm going to preach two hours before I get here? And God gives it to me because I've learned how to tap in. You know what though? You never learn how to tap in if you've never learned how to pour out. What for? For your intellectual enlightenment? I want to be great. I want to do this. When I reach my calling, you know, all I want to do is do this. And it's always something far off and in the future. What are you doing today? So, well, I don't have the opportunity. Baloney. You don't take the opportunity. God will provide you with work in the kingdom. Period. Bar none. Ephesians 2 says it. So it's not up for debate. He prepared work for you to do and He did it in advance so that when you would get born again, you would do that work. If you sit on your salvation, shame on you. I wouldn't want to be you on that day. Because Jesus won't sit down and give you a theological quiz. Promise that. Now, I know most of you are working in the kingdom and I'm proud to work beside you. I don't say these things to beat you down. I say these to spur you, to remind you, to push you towards faith because this is what we were born for. This should be our finest hour. 
I didn't read to you verse 46. Y'all weren't in Luke with me, so you didn't know that. But I told you I was going to read you Luke 45 and then verse 46. Anybody want to know what verse 46 says? Raise your hand if you'd like to know. Mandy would like to know, so we'll read it to Mandy. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Get that. He says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings bad things out of the bad things that are stored up in his heart. And then he looks at his disciples and says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Friends, that ought not be the church. You've got good stored up in your heart. There have been people serving you. Have you ever thought for a second, when you sit in this seat, I want you to think about something. This church serves you at least two meals a week. Talking about spiritual meals. Natural meals sometimes too. How are you serving the other people in the church? Christians' lives, I've been teaching on this constantly. Christians' lives are supposed to be outward focused. I'm so thrilled to hear when people's first thoughts are of other people. It sickens me. Makes me want to run away from a conversation and go throw up when all I hear coming out of somebody's mouth is about them. And I don't mean how great they are. That's, that's something else you have to deal with. I'm talking about how pitiful, how bad, how... Come on, we're in the church of God. Now, I don't want to keep beating you with that stick. I think everybody's got that point. You know, we coined a little phrase when some people in the church were going through a hard time emotionally that comes from childbirthing and everything else. To put the smile on your face until it appears in your heart. Well, men, you need to learn that too. Let's begin reading back in Genesis. i got to get through Genesis so we can get to the other good stuff, huh? Say, no, no, stop now. This hurts, Pastor. It does. We've preached some hard messages lately, haven't we? Entangled in sin has bothered me since I preached it. Kept me holy, though. Tell you what, you stand up here and preach about what a tangled net sin is and how it affects everybody around you, keeps you from doing God's will, all those things. You, you, it's easier to live holy that week. Quite a few times I caught myself this week and I said, oh no, I'm not going to step in that net. See, that's what preaching's supposed to do. That's why I'm trying to get you to dwell on it. That's why I'm trying to get you to go back afterwards and think about it. That's why I'm trying to get you to hear this, listen to them on the internet, and make comments so other people can be benefited by what God's taught you. See, that's part of the outward focus Christian life. Sharing with others what God has shared with you. There are people in other states that listen to those and make comments every week. I sure would like to see some people from our own church do that. Okay, back in Genesis. 41. Where did we leave off? Verse 36. Thank you, sweetheart. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of the officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, why did he come to that conclusion? Why did he come to the conclusion that Joseph was full of the Spirit of God? Because Joseph said right up front, No, buddy, I can't interpret this dream, but God can give it to you. And it came through the mouth of a servant named Joseph. So what conclusion did Pharaoh come to? The Spirit of God must live in Joseph. See, that's when you have this thing in a balance. That's what people will say. They won't say, Oh, how great that Christian is. 
that said, my God, what a great God they serve. Those kids reflect their father. They do the things their father taught them to do, the things he empowers them to do. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to this throne will I be greater than you. Isn't it amazing? When people act like God, when the Spirit flows through us in the way it's supposed to be, the way, the reaction of people around us, you'll find out if you're not trying to cram your doctrine down somebody's throat, if you don't walk right up to somebody and say, how do you baptize? In what name? Uh, do your women wear men's clothes? Do you believe in one God or three? All of those ridiculous things that church, and not ridiculous in that they're not important, ridiculous in that that's the basis for a relationship. Whether or not you wear makeup or your hair is a certain way or believe in some doctrine made up by men or dance or don't dance or drink or don't drink. You know, those things are not what is important when you are establishing relationships with people. You know what's important? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's Galatians. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And when you do that, people will warm to it. I promise they will. And then you know what? It doesn't become so important whether or not they meet your religious standards, whether they smoke, drink, or their skirts are too short. God has a way of doing whatever He wants to do with people about all that kind of stuff. If you'll just express faith and love. Tell you what, this woman that I met across the street, so much has said, she didn't say it in so many words, but she said it in a roundabout way. One of the reasons she doesn't go to church is because she smokes and drinks. I said, well, bring your beer to our church barbecues. And if you want to smoke, lots of people in our church do. So lots of people God will have to deal with me about, you know. But in a, I have some percentage of our church does smoke. <laughs> and since we're so small, it's a pretty big percentage. It's just a few do. Yeah, we, we, we smoke our food all the time. Now, now here, here's what I'm saying, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to increase Marlboro sales here, okay? Although I could care less if all of you smoke. The only reason we don't smoke in here is because it would binge up the walls, okay? And I worked hard to paint these. Actually, the ladies in the church painted the walls. But what, I, what I'm trying to say is, you show me a scripture that says that that should separate you from fellowship. You remember that the whole book of Acts is written because Jews had a religious code given to them by God and they did not want to fellowship with Gentiles who were not given that code. And what did God do? He rebuked them. Paul stood up and rebuked Peter and Barnabas to their faces over it because we can't let those religious codes separate us. One in whom is the Spirit of God. Can we find anybody in Egypt who... Has the Spirit, the Ruach Elohim is this word here, not HaKodesh. I'm just assuming that Pharaoh didn't have the kind of understanding that we have. But uh, he said, can we find the Ruach Elohim in this way? Galatians 5.22 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Got that? Patience, kindness, goodness, patience, kindness, goodness. Oh, it would be nice. Patience, kindness, goodness. I need more of all three of those. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, have mercy. I'm failing, failing, failing. Against such there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Do not think you are in step with the Spirit. You know what keeping in step is? 
That's a left, a left, a left, right, left. That's marching in a cadence, keeping in step with the Spirit. You can't do that sitting on your rear end at home watching television, feeling sorry for yourself. Can't. You know how you keep in step with the Spirit? You move when He moves. You do what He says do. To do that, you have to have the mindset that He's moving, that there's something that He wants you to do. Israel woke up every day and looked out to see if that cloud moved. Somebody watched all night to see if that pillar of fire moved. How attentive have you been? If the Lord spoke to you and said, there's an Ethiopian eunuch over there, would you run to do His will? Or would you debate it until the voice went away? Galatians 6.9 says this, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, if we do not give up. What does that tell you? You will reap a harvest at the proper time if you don't give up. So what do you think the devil's trying to get you to do all of the time? I tried it. It didn't work. I gave up. Uh, we could do that, but look, I, I, then I won't be able to do this. Give up. Give up. Give up. Quit. He'll use your intellect to do it. He'll use fear to do it. Somebody wants to find fear as false evidence appearing real. So when the devil tells you you'll be destitute if you write that check, or you won't have food in your own pantry if you give that away, that's false evidence appearing real because God said your house was built on a rock. Second Corinthians 9 is an important one. These bring these Scriptures into balance. So go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to go back to Genesis though. Can't teach about Joseph without completing that shadow and type. My heart won't allow it. Y'all awake? Y'all mad at me? Okay. Well... <laughs> or Iraq. 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 Y'all in 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 9. Starting in verse 3. Tell me when you're there. I want y'all to read this one. The other ones I didn't care if... The other ones I didn't care if you just listened. These I want you to read. Okay? You've got to get this through the ear gate and the eye gate. But I am sending... I'm sorry, hold on. Yeah, I'm in the right place, aren't I? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 3. Yeah. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter may not prove hollow. Do you know what's going on? There's a famine in Jerusalem. The Corinthian church has benefited from the teaching of the church uh, in Jerusalem. And, God, and Paul has said, hey, don't you worry, Jerusalem church. We're going to go out and collect among these Gentiles. And I tell you what, they're going to bless your socks off. Okay, that's what's happened. He says, I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this manner should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we're not saying this about you. Uh, I'm sorry. Come with See, I write in these Bibles too much. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangement for the generous gift you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 
as it is written, He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply an increase in your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. We'll read a few more verses, but that's exactly what's been twisted into a prosperity message. Does that sound at all like the goal of this is to get you rich? Or does it sound like God will give as you give to others so that you're not doing without as you meet the needs of others? This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. See, there's two things happening. It's meeting people's physical needs, but it's causing those people to see faith in action and marvel at God. Verse 13, because of this service by which you have proved yourselves, wow, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul wrote that about you? Wouldn't it be something? But do you notice the, the, the mixture of sternness and kindness in him as he does this? He's telling them, boy, this is going to bless everybody. It's going to meet their needs. It's going to cause them to thank God and even remember you in their prayers. But have it ready when I come. That I'm bringing other Gentiles with me who have given. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want you to be embarrassed. Do you hear that tone? I bet he wished he didn't have to say that. No pastor wants to say things that are hard. You want people to do it out of a willing heart, not because they feel compelled to. In fact, he said, be a cheerful giver and only give what you've set aside in your heart to give. Flip over a page. This is the balance verse. And I promise we're about to quit. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 8. This brings all of this into balance. I'm not trying to get you poor. I'm not trying to take your last meal so that you're eating ramen noodles, but friends, two of us couldn't miss a meal to give somebody else one. When you need something, when a family member's sick, you want somebody to get healed, you never fasted? I fasted 14 days one time because somebody was sick and I thought it'd help. I was wrong. Me eating or not eating doesn't do a thing for God. It does everything for me. But isn't it amazing? And there's a great need close to me. How easily I did that. Why does it have to be in your immediate family? We're the family of God. Hmm. Verse 6 of chapter 8. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Lord have mercy, he'd get thrown out of church for saying that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Is he talking about money? 
But money is something that competes with you in your life, isn't it? It's one of the masters that you have to put down. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. I want Paul's advice, don't you? I've heard everything preached. You're under a curse if you don't do this, that, and the other. Well, the Bible also says that a curse can't land on us. So how do you reconcile those? I've heard people do everything they can to get you to pledge, to commit, to do all... I could care less. We don't even pass a plate in here. But I do want to follow Paul's advice. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. According to your means. I'm not asking anybody to give what you do not have. You can't. I'm not asking you to use a credit card to bless somebody. I've done that. Huge mistake. The same faith that it takes to give it, I should have had faith that God would give it to me. So years later, I paid some of it off. Some I didn't. Some of it had got wrote, written off. That caused you to less, love me less? I was ashamed. I did everything I could to hide that from people for years because I was ashamed. I worked in the credit industry. I knew what that said about me. I know what it's like to have a debt I can't pay. Okay? Spiritually and physically. I know exactly what that's like. And I've been forgiven for both. Do you think that makes me more inclined to show mercy to others or less? For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will su supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered Little did not have too little. Let me ask you something. What is that verse? He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. What is that talking about? Anybody recognize it? Where does it come from? Manna. When God rained down His supply upon the Israelites, they went out and gathered what they needed. If they gathered too much, it turned to worms to teach them a lesson. If they gathered just a little, God made the little last. What do you have that you didn't receive from God? It's all manna. doesn't matter whether it's a Ford Mustang, a Chevrolet Suburban. It's real manna. I'm teasing. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever you have, God gave you. And He wants there to be some semblance of equality among the body of Christ. How can we look at somebody that has nothing while we have everything and think that Jesus is all right with that? It's not about building your kingdom. He's about building His. But the balance is according to your means. Teacher was once talking to a kid just like Judah. Judah's a bright kid. He picks up on Scripture quickly. He'll even challenge me in the middle of a sermon if he thinks I got something wrong. Y'all heard that last week. I love him for it. I bet the kid preaches one day. Teacher was once relating the parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Y'all remember that? The rich man and Lazarus? The rich man had all good things in his life. And when he died, he went to a bad place. While Lazarus had a, a really harsh earthly life. Even the dogs licked his sores. They benefited from him, but he, he got nothing, right? But when he died, he went to Abraham's side. So the teacher asked the kid, Now, which one would you rather be, boys? The rich man or Lazarus? One smart little boy like Judah said, I'd rather be the rich man while I'm alive and Lazarus when I die. <laughs> that sums up the church. We want to live like the rich man. We want to gather up all that we can gather, make sure that we're comfortable, that we're happy, and then we want the reward of those that did without when we die. 
Scripture says you cannot serve two masters. Let's finish Genesis. Oh, wow, I'm going over on my time, aren't I? I promise I'll hurry. We'll have to teach this again because this is really the best part. And we're going to read verses 41 through 49. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. You know what the signet ring was? Signet ring was something that they literally wore that they stamped in wax or clay on tablets. And you know what it said? This is the word of Pharaoh. Now, who does that sound like? Who came to us in a man's body like Joseph, but with the very word and authority to use the word of God so that when he spoke, it bore the seal of God. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. I bet you can figure out what that is. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And the men shouted before him, Make way. Now get this. God has a chariot throne, right? We preached about it in the message. God's on the move. God's presence is a chariot throne. Who was in the presence of God with God all the days of His ministry on earth that He might take you to be where He is? That's Jesus. He's right there with the Father, however you want to think about that. He is on that chariot throne. And who went before Him shouting, Make way? John the Baptist. Same words. Prepare the way. Make the way. Thus He put Him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name, Zaphonoth-Paneah, and gave him Asenoth, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. Now get this. Only with respect to the throne was there any difference between Pharaoh and Joseph because he spoke the very word of Pharaoh, had a signet ring to prove it, the royal garments to prove it, and rode with him in his chariot. Does this sound like anybody that you've come to know and love? Only with respect to the throne is there a difference. Read Corinthians 15. See if that doesn't make it make some sense to you when the Son submits the kingdom back to the Father. Now, he got a name. He got a name and it was off and off today and he also got a foreign bride. Isn't that interesting? Now, this name's Zaphonoth Paneah. You've heard me tell you before it's Savior, but I found the literal definitions. Okay? In the Egyptian tongue, Zaphonoth Paneah means two things. Sustenance of the land is the living one. In other words, there is a living one in this land that is our sustenance. Well, that's good, isn't it? The living one who is our sustenance. You know what the other definition is? The one who furnishes the nourishment of life. Boy, doesn't that sound just like what Peter said? Are you guys going to leave me too? Peter said, where would I go? You have the very words of life. Can you see how in almost every way Joseph was just like Jesus? He was a man in whom the Spirit of God dwelt so that he was elevated to where the throne was the only thing that was caused him to be distinguishable between him and Pharaoh. He spoke the words of Pharaoh as if he was Pharaoh. His title meant Savior, the Living One, the Source of Life. Isn't that interesting? I wonder what God's trying to teach us there. He was 30 years old when this happened. Then we go on down, and I'm not going to read it because there's two scriptures I want to get to and I'm running way over. We go on down and find out that He provided for them. They took all of this into the collection. When the famine came, He was there. You're supposed to be storing up good in your heart, just like... See, the reason I'm telling you why uh, Joseph is like Jesus is because we all know we're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to be like Joseph too. So that when you encounter famine, 
you'll know what to do. Here's a proverb. I'm going to read you three scriptures and we're going to close. Here's a proverb. Proverb 11.24 The man, one man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another man withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Isn't that interesting? Man who gives freely gets even more. But the one who withholds, poverty comes to him. If you want to gain life, you must lose it. But if you try to keep your life, you lose even the life you have. Didn't Jesus say that? Hmm. I wonder where he got the idea. On that subject, a theologian named J.R. Miller once wrote, Mary's ointment was wasted when she broke the vase and poured it upon her Lord. Yes, it's true. But suppose she had left the ointment in an unbroken vase. What remembrances would it then have had? Would there have been any mention of it in the Gospel pages? Would her deed of careful keeping have been told over the world? She broke the vase and poured it out, lost it, sacrificed it. And now that perfume fills the whole earth. We may keep our life, if we will, carefully preserving it from waste. But we shall have no reward, no honor for it at the last. If we empty it out in loving service, we shall make it a lasting blessing to the world and we shall be remembered forevermore. I'm asking you today, what are you pouring out your life for? You saving it? You get no reward like that. Won't fill the earth like that. The more you pour it out, the more it'll fill the whole earth. There's two scriptures, people pouring something out. See if you recognize them. Luke twenty two twenty. In the same way, after he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That one man's act of obedience, pouring himself out, has it touched the whole world? Sure has. How about this one? Philippians 2, verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Sounds like he's talking about people being in a famine and shining, huh? In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. That jar that Mary broke was more than a wages. It cost her something. She had been saving it her whole life because it was valuable. She gave it all in something that was seemingly worthless. It's gone in a few minutes. And yet we're still talking about that one deed of faith today. What will you do? What will you do with your life? You're going to treasure up heaven on earth or treasure up your treasures on earth or in heaven? I'd rather pour out the most costly things I have and it be a beautiful fragrance to the Lord that gets told of for the generations to come than to keep it for myself. It'd be something good to write on an epitaph, wouldn't it? Y'all stand up and let's pray.